Part 2, Chapter 6 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 6. He let himself in at the heavy door. When he closed it behind him in the darkness, the heaviness of the door sent long, surreptitious whisperings up the great stone stairs. These sounds irritated him. If you shut a heavy door on an enclosed space, it will push air in front of it, and there will be whisperings. The atmosphere of mystery was absurd. He was just a man returning after a night out. Two-thirds, say, of a night out. It must be half-past three. But what the night had lacked in length, it had made up in fantastic aspects. He laid his cane down on the invisible oak chest and through the tangible and velvety darkness that had always in it the chill of the stone of walls and stairs, he felt for the handle of the breakfast-room door. Three long parallelograms existed, pale glimmerings above, cut two-thirds of the way down by the serrations of chimney-pot and roof-shadows. Nine full paces across the heavy-piled carpet, then he ought to reach his round-back chair by the left-hand window. He reached his round-back chair by the left-hand window. He sank into it. It fitted exactly his back. He imagined that no man had ever been so tired and that no man had ever been so alone. A small, alive sound existed at the other end of the room. In front of him existed one and a half pale parallelograms. They were the reflection of the windows of the mirror. The sound was no doubt Colton the cat. Something alive, at any rate. Possibly Sylvia at the other end of the room waiting for him to see what he looked like. Most likely. It didn't matter. His mind stopped. Sheer weariness. When it went on again, it was saying, Naked shingles and surges drear, and on these debatable borders of the world. He said sharply, Nonsense! The one was either Calais Beach or Dover Sands of the Whiskered Man, Arnold. He would be seeing them both within the twenty-four hours. But no, he was going from Waterloo, Southampton, Havre, therefore. The other was by that detestable fellow, the subject of our little monograph. What a long time ago. He saw a pile of shining dispatch cases, the inscription, This rack is reserved for a coloured pink and blue photograph of Bologna, Sands, and the held-up squares, the proof of our little... What a long time ago. He heard his own voice saying in the new railway carriage, proudly, clearly, and with male hardness, I stand for monogamy and chastity, and for no talking about it. Of course, if a man who's a man wants to have a woman, he has her, and again, no talking about it. His voice, his own voice, came to him as if from the other end of a long-distance telephone, a damn long-distance one, ten years. If, then, a man who's a man wants to have a woman, damn it, he doesn't. In ten years he had learnt that a Tommy who's a decent fellow, his mind said at one and the same moment, the two lines running one over the other like the two subjects of a fugue, some beguiling virgins with the broken seals of perjury, and since when we stand side by side only hands may meet. 
he said, but damn it, damn it again. The beastly fellow was wrong. Our hands didn't meet. I don't believe I've shaken hands. I don't believe I've touched the girl in my life. Never once. Not the handshaking sort. A nod, a meeting and parting. English, you know. But yes, she put her arm over my shoulders on the bank. On such short acquaintance, I said to myself then, Well, we've made up for it since then. Or no, not made up. Atoned. As Sylvia so aptly put it, at that moment, Mother was dying. He, his conscious self, said, But it was probably the drunken brother. You don't beguile virgins with the broken seals of perjury in Kensington High Street at two at night, supporting one on each side a drunken blue jacket with intermittent legs. Intermittent was the word. Intermittently functioning. At one point the boy had broken from them and run with astonishing velocity along the dull wood paving of an immense empty street. When they had caught him up, he had been haranguing under black hanging trees with an Oxford voice, an immobile policeman. "'You're the fellows,' he had been exclaiming, "'who make old England what she is. "'You keep the peace in our homes. "'You save us from the vile excesses.' Teachens himself he had always addressed with the voice and accent of a common seaman, with his coarsened surface voice. He had the two personalities— Two or three times he had said, Why don't you kiss the girl? She's a nice girl, isn't she? You're a poor blank Tommy, aren't you? Well, the poor blank Tommies ought to have all the nice girls they want. That's straight, isn't it? And even at that time they hadn't known what was going to happen. There are certain cruelties. They had got a four-wheel cab at last. The drunken boy had sat beside the driver. He had insisted. Her little pale, shrunken face had gazed straight before her. It hadn't been possible to speak. The cab, rattling all over the road, had pulled up with frightful jerks when the boy had grabbed at the reins. The old driver hadn't seemed to mind, but they had had to subscribe all the money in their pockets to pay him after they had carried the boy into the black house. Teachin's mind said to him, Now when they came to her father's house so nimbly she slipped in and said, There is a fool without and is a maid within. He answered dully, Perhaps that's what it really amounts to. He had stood at the hall door, she looking out at him with a pitiful face. Then from the sofa within, the brother had begun to snore. Enormous, grotesque sounds, like the laughter of unknown races from darkness. He had turned and walked down the path, she following him. He had exclaimed, It's perhaps too untidy. She had said, Yes, yes, ugly, too Oh, private, he said, he remembered, but forever, she said in a great hurry, but when you come back, permanently, and, oh, as if it were in public, I don't know, she had added, oughtn't we? I'd be ready, she added, I will be ready for anything you ask. He had said at some time, but obviously not under this roof, and he had added, where the sort that do not. She had answered quickly too. Yes, that's it. We're that sort. And then she had asked, And Ethel's party, was it a great success? It hadn't, she knew, been an inconsequence. He had answered, Ah, that's permanent, that's public. There was Rugley, the Duke. Sylvia brought him. She'll be a great friend. And the President of the 
local government board, I think, and a Belgian equivalent to Lord Chief Justice, and of course Claudine Sandbach. 270, all of the best, the modestly elated Googams have said as I left. And Mr Ruggles, yes, they're established. No place for me. Nor for me, she had answered, she added, but I'm glad. Patches of silence ran between them. They hadn't yet got out of the habit of thinking they had to hold up the drunken brother. That had seemed to last for a thousand painful months, long enough to acquire a habit. The brother seemed to roar, Haw, haw, koryash! And after two minutes, Haw, haw, koryash! Hungarian, no doubt. He said, It was splendid to see Vincent standing beside the Duke, showing him a first edition, not, of course, quite the thing for a after all, wedding party, but how was Rugley to know that? And Vincent not in the least servile. He even corrected Cousin Rugley over the meaning of the word colophon. The first time he ever corrected a superior. Established, you see, and practically Cousin Rugley, dear Sylvia Teachin's cousin, so the next to nearest thing, wife of Lady McMaster's oldest friend. Sylvia going to them in their quite modest little place in Surrey, as for us, he had concluded, they also serve who only stand and wait. She said, I suppose the rooms looked lovely. He had answered, lovely. They'd got all the pictures by that beastly fellow up from the rectory study in the dining room on dark oak panelling. A fair blaze of bosoms and nipples and lips and pomegranates. The tallest silver candlesticks, of course. You remember silver candlesticks and dark oak. She said, Oh, my dear, don't, don't. He had just touched the rim of his helmet with his folded gloves. So we just wash out, he had said. She said, Would you take this bit of parchment? I got a little Jew girl to write on it in Hebrew. It's God bless you and keep you. God watch over you at your goings out and it. He tucked it into his breast pocket. The talismanic passage, he said, of course I'll wear it. She said, if we could wash out this afternoon, it would make it easier to bear. Your poor mother, you know, she was dying when we last. He said, you remember that, and even then you, and if I hadn't gone to Lobsheet. She said, from the first moment I set eyes on you. He said, and I, from the first moment, I'll tell you. If I looked out of a door, it was all like sand but to the half left a little bubbling up of water that could be trusted to keep on forever. You perhaps won't understand. She said, yes, I know. They were seeing landscapes, sand dunes, close-cropped, some negligible shipping, a stump-mastered brig from Archangel. From the first moment, he repeated. She said, if we could wash out... He said, and for the first moment felt grand, tender, protective. Yes, you can, he said. You cut out from this afternoon, just before 4.58 it was, when I said that to you, and you consented. I heard the horse guard's clock. To now, cut it out and join time up. It can be done. You know they do it surgically for some illness. Cut out a great length of the bowel and join the tube up, for colitis, I think. She said, but I wouldn't cut it out. It was the first spoken sign. He said, no, it wasn't, from the very beginning, with every word. 
she exclaimed. You felt that, too. We've been pushed as in a carpenter's vice. We couldn't have got away. He said, by God, that's it. He suddenly saw a weeping willow in St. James Park, 459. He had just said, will you be my mistress tonight? She had gone away, half left, her hands to her face, a small fountain, half left, that could be trusted to keep on forever. Along the lakeside, sauntering, swinging his crooked stick, his incredibly shiny top hat perched sideways, his claw hammer coat tails very long, flapping out behind in dusty sunlight, his magpie pince-nez gleaming, had come naturally Mr Ruggles. He had looked at the girl, then down at Teachin, sprawled on his bench. He had just touched the brim of his shiny hat. He said, dining at the club tonight? Teachin said, no, I've resigned. With the aspect of a long-billed bird chewing a bit of putridity, Ruggles said, Oh, but we've had an emergency meeting of the committee. The committee was sitting and sent you a letter asking you to reconsider. Teachin said, I know. I shall withdraw my resignation tonight and resign again tomorrow morning. Ruggles' muscles had relaxed for a quick second, then they stiffened. Oh, I say, he had said, not that. You couldn't do that. Not to the club. It's never been done. It's an insult. It's meant to be, Teachin said. Gentlemen shouldn't be expected to belong to a club that has certain members on its committee. Ruggles' deepish voice suddenly grew very high. Eh, I say, you know, he squeaked. Teachin had said, I'm not vindictive, but I am deadly tired of all old women and their chatter. Ruggles had said, I don't... His face had become suddenly dark brown, scarlet, and then brownish purple. He stood droopingly, looking at Teachin's boots. Oh, oh, well, he said at last, see you at McMaster's tonight. A great thing his knighthood, first-class man. That had been the first Teachin's had heard of McMaster's knighthood. He had missed looking at the honours list of that morning. Afterwards, dining alone with Sir Vincent and Lady McMaster, he had seen pinned up a back view of the Sovereign doing something to Vincent, a photo for next morning's papers. From McMaster's embarrassed hushings of Edith Ethel's explanation that the honour was for special services of a specific kind, Teachin's guessed both the nature of McMaster's service and the fact that the little man hadn't told Edith Ethel, who originally had done the work. And, just like his girl, Teachin's had let it go at that. He didn't see why poor Vincent shouldn't have that little bit of prestige at home, under all the monuments. But he hadn't, though through all the evening McMaster, with the solicitude and affection of a cringing Italian greyhound, had hastened from celebrity to celebrity to hang over Teachin's, and although Teachin's knew that his friend was grieved and appalled like any woman at his Teachin's going out again to France, Teachins hadn't been able to look McMaster again in the face. He had felt ashamed. He had felt for the first time in his life ashamed. Even when he, Teachins, had slipped away from the party to go to his good fortune, McMaster had come panting down the stairs, running after him, through guests coming up. He had said, Wait, you're not going, I want to... With a miserable and appalled glance, he had looked up the stairs, Lady McMaster might have come out too. 
his black short beard quivering and his wretched eyes turned down, he had said, I want to explain this miserable knighthood. Teachens patted him on the shoulder, McMaster being on the stairs above him. It's all right, old man, he had said, and with real affection. We've pallid up and down enough for a little thing like that not to. I'm very glad, McMaster had whispered. And Valentine, she's not here tonight? He had exclaimed, By God, if I thought, Titchens had said, It's all right, it's all right. She's at another party. I'm going on. McMaster had looked at him doubtingly and with misery, leaning over and clutching the clammy banisters. Tell her, he said, Good God, you may be killed. I beg you, I beg you to believe. I will, like the apple of my eye. In the swift glance that Teachens took of his face, he could see that McMaster's eyes were full of tears. They both stood looking down at the stone stairs for a long time. Then McMaster had said, Well. Teachens had said, Well. But he hadn't been able to look at McMaster's eyes, though he had felt his friend's eyes pitiably exploring his own face. A backstairs way out of it, he had thought. A queer thing that you couldn't look in the face a man you were never going to see again. But by God, he said to himself fiercely when his mind came back again to the girl in front of him, this isn't going to be another backstairs exit. I must tell her. I'm damned if I don't make an effort. She had had her handkerchief to her face. I'm always crying, she said, a little bubbling spring that can be trusted to keep on. He looked to the right and to the left. Ruggles or general someone with false teeth that didn't fit must be coming along. The street with its sooty boskage was clean, empty and silent. She was looking at him. He didn't know how long he had been silent. He didn't know where he had been. Intolerable waves urged him towards her. After a long time, he said, Well. She moved back. She said, I won't watch you out of sight. It's unlucky to watch anyone out of sight. But I will never... I will never cut what you said out of my memory. She was gone, the door shut. He had wondered what she would never cut out of her memory, that he had asked her that afternoon to be his mistress. He had caught, outside the gates of his old office, a transport lorry that had given him a lift to Holborn. End of Part 2, Chapter 6 End of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford